Wow. If it's your first time visiting ET, <laughs> what you've experienced so far is not usually what happens on a Sunday morning. This has been a unique time this morning. Um, I'm glad it has. <laughs> Believe me, I'm not apologizing for anything. Uh, I love it when God decides to um, bust up the status quo in the routine. And uh, I can tell you this, obviously he is been looking forward to this day for a long time in somebody's life. Um, God's got something in store for somebody, and it's awesome just to be a part of that. It's just humbling, and it's need, and um, just because the music is over doesn't mean that God is done doing what he wants to do among us this morning. Um, so, man, it's good stuff. Uh, in our Roman series, we're starting a new chapter today, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 10. Everybody doing all right today? Yeah. It's kind of hard not to with that kind of service, and then plus the weather that we woke up to this morning, my goodness. I told the first service this morning, if we ever had to build another church, I'm going to ask for a retractable roof. <laughs> It'd be nice to do that today, wouldn't it? Romans chapter 10, and we get to hear some great news today. So if you're in that spot, stand with me as we receive what the Lord wants to say to us through his word today. Romans 10, starting in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your presence here with us this morning. God, I thank you that you are at work. And Lord, I just trust that you are going to reveal yourself to someone in ways that they have never seen before. God, I pray that I say something this morning, God, that people may have heard a hundred times, but this time it finally clicks. Lord, let us see you and let us be changed permanently just by being in your presence, receiving your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this letter so far, Paul has been saying that salvation isn't attained in anything other than faith in Jesus Christ. He's been explaining how the Israelites are not saved just because they are Israelites. They aren't saved because of their blood. They're saved, they can only be saved by the blood of someone else, the blood of Jesus. And so here in chapter 10, he's just driving that point home even more. In verse 2, he acknowledges that their zeal for God, he acknowledges their zeal, but says that it's the wrong kind of zeal. He says that their zeal is not in accordance with knowledge, meaning that it's misplaced. In verse 3, he explains what he was talking about in verse 2. He says, for not knowing about God's righteousness and 
In seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They were zealous about their own righteousness. And zealous means to be passionate about, to show strong support for something. Their zeal was misplaced because it was all about what they could do or had to do for God. How well they obeyed all the rules of the old covenant law and observed all the rituals. They assumed that they gained God's favor based on how righteous they could be. The thought was, the more righteous I act, the more favor from God I will gain, the more blessings from God I will receive. It was the old covenant mindset that we've talked about many times here of, if I do this, then God is going to do this. So verse 2 and 3 shows where their zeal and their confidence was misplaced. And then in verse 4, he shows us where it should be placed. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now what does he mean by Christ is the end of the law? Well, it echoes what Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 17, when he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Let's talk about that for a minute because I think it's important that we really understand what that means. I've heard some say that since Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, that that means that we should still try our best to follow the law and all those old covenant rules as best as we can. But if that's really what Jesus meant by that, I don't believe he would have said the next part where he said, I came to fulfill the law. Here's what Jesus meant by that. The law is God's requirement for us to be right with him. So Jesus was saying that he did not come to abolish God's requirement. The requirement still stands. And the requirement is perfect obedience to God's law. That is God's requirement. And Jesus is saying, I did not come to get rid of that requirement. And that part right there is not good news to us because that is an impossible requirement for us to meet. And where we really mess up is when we try to meet it. Is when we do everything we can to try to meet that requirement on our own, hoping that we will at least get by on our effort and our good intentions. The good news is actually in the second part of Jesus' statement. When he said, I came to fulfill it. Jesus is the only one who has perfectly met God's requirement. The only one. And when we accept him as our only hope of being made right with God, the Bible says that we are in him. Being in him means that we now receive everything that Jesus receives from God the Father. Since Jesus met the requirements of the law, being in him means that we are credited as having met the requirements also. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Jesus was saying that, yes, the requirement of the law is still in effect, but the only way that you're going to meet that requirement is through me. I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Everything that you thought you gained by obeying the law, you can only gain through me. 
So instead of having zeal for and being passionate about obeying the law, we should be passionate about Jesus. Not passionate about what we can do in order to appease God, but passionate about what Jesus has already done. Our zeal should not not be placed on what we can do from God and gain from Him, but on what Jesus has already gained for us. He met God's requirement on our behalf. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Now, the next part of this text, starting in verse 5, is really neat. Look at this. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, this is a really cool way that the Old Testament ties in to the New. Paul is quoting part of Deuteronomy chapter 30. So turn back to Deuteronomy for a minute because I want to show you this. Deuteronomy 30 is part of Moses' farewell address to Israel. It's right before he commissions Joshua to take his place in leading the people into the promised land. And Moses gives this long discourse reminding the people of God's faithfulness and all his blessings and warning them of the consequences to come for their failure to disobey his command. And right in the middle of this discourse, there is a clue as to what all this has been about. It is a foreshadow of what is to come in Jesus. And these are the verses that Paul was quoting in Romans 10. So Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 11. For this commandment which I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. Now, let's stop right there. Because right off the bat in verse 11, we know that Moses is not referring to the old covenant law. Why? Because the law was too difficult. It is out of reach. It's not just difficult. It is downright impossible. And so he can't be referring to the law. And then this next part is the part Paul was quoting in in Romans 10. Verse 12 says, It is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. He's saying that it's not an external thing. So again, he's not referring to the law because the law was an external thing. It was the Ten Commandments engraved in stone. It was something that Moses went up on the mountain to get and bring back to the people. And then verse 14. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. It's not an external thing for you to look at and then try to follow as if it were some checklist or instruction manual for you. It is an internal thing. Now, if we could just pretend to be biblical investigators for a minute, trying to discover what the Old Testament was all about, verse 14 would jump out at us as a huge clue. If we were to say, you know, this whole being led out of slavery and into the promised land and all this instruction and focus on obeying all these rules and rituals, there's got to be something more to it. I mean, what does this actually 
representing? What are these stories telling us and pointing us to? Verse 14 would give us a clue and we go, aha, it's got something to do with the mouth and the heart. And so that means it's not really at all about how well we wash our hands and how often we sacrifice an animal and how good we are at following the rules. It's about something else that the mouth and the heart are key to. What could that be? Well, now flip back over to Romans 10 again and we'll solve the puzzle. Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. There's Deuteronomy 30, 14. He's quoting. Now he's going to tell what that means. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And there it is. It's all about the gospel. That is what Moses was foretelling and prophesying about in his farewell address to Israel. That's what all of the Old Testament had been pointing to. Now then, I want to park on verse 9 here for a minute. Because Paul takes the Ten Commandments and all 613 rules and regulations that were associated with the law, and he has reduced them down to just these two. Confessing with your mouth and believing with your heart the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. What once was complicated has now been simplified. What once was confusing has now been made very clear. And this right here is the greatest news that could ever come to a person. Especially a Jew who had lived his whole life trying to earn God's favor through his good behavior and obedience to the law, striving for a goal that was always just out of reach, never knowing if he had quite done enough. Out at my house, um, we have to use Wi-Fi for our internet connection. DSL doesn't go, isn't delivered out to where we are. And uh, we depend on our Wi-Fi a lot. Not only for the internet, for the computer, but our television on our TV, we only have one channel that we get through an antenna. And so if we want to watch anything other than NBC out of Tyler, we've got to watch it through Netflix, which goes through the Wii console, which can only be done with a Wi-Fi connection. And so we depend on our Wi-Fi a lot. The problem is that because of all the trees around our house, that connection isn't always reliable. And when the weather is bad and the trees are wet, it, we won't have it because it just cannot penetrate all that, the, the density of the trees. Winter is a great time. We love the winter when all the leaves are off the tree, then we have a pretty good connection. But a co- couple months ago, that connection was gone, and all we usually have to do is just wait a little bit, and it'll eventually come back on. But this time, it lasted a lot longer than usual. And we didn't know what the problem was, so we had to speculate as to how to fix it. So we checked all the connections on our computer, and we went in and tried to see if anything was going on there. We went outside and looked at our antenna. We did everything that we could think of to try to fix the problem and get that connection back. And everything we tried never worked, so we called our wireless provider, and they said, I don't know, things look good on our end. We can't really figure it out. And so they walked us through all these 
steps, and then they suggested getting a taller antenna so it can get over even more of the tree interference. So we did that, and, and that didn't even work. And so we were just frustrated because everything we tried wouldn't work. This went on for weeks. And we kept trying all these things to try to fix it. And finally, we called the provider again and said, look, guys, we got to do something here. We have nothing out here. We're dying here. Got no Internet connection. (laughs) And so finally, they said, you know what? The only thing that we can think of is, have you checked to see if your router is plugged into the wall? (laughs) Lo and behold, that was the problem the whole time. Someone in our house, and they are not fessing up, <laughs> unplugged it and never plugged it back in. Now, even though I felt like an absolute idiot for not checking the simplest, most basic thing first, that was really good news. Because that meant I didn't have to try all this exhaustive stuff and steps and speculate and trying to discover how to fix the problem. It was that simple. I was like, really? That's it? That's all I have to do? Man, that is great news. You know, that's exactly how the gospel is. You know, all of us come into this world with a yearning to be connected to our Creator. We all have this innate sense that that connection is broken. We know something has got to be fixed. Being blind to God's truth, we are left to speculate as to how to fix that problem. And there are four main things that we generally look to to try to satisfy that longing and try to fix what's broken. And if you're following along in the notes there in your bulletin, here are the four things that Everybody generally looks to. Number one is that we look to ourselves. That's why the number one selling genre of books by far in the United States, you know what it is? Self-help books. People buy self-help books like crazy. Because we think that if we can just improve ourselves, we would be satisfied and God would like us more. But here's the truth about that. Right under that, you need to write this down. You will never be good enough for God. You will never be good enough for God. Now that statement right there is either going to be very terrifying for some of you or absolutely liberating for others. It all depends on your understanding of the gospel. The other thing we tend to look to is other people. Some of you in here expect your spouse to meet every one of your needs and to fulfill fulfill you. Some of you young people believe that your worth is found in a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I'm going to tell you, if you look to your spouse to meet all your needs, I would bet, and I would probably win that bet, that there's probably a lot of fighting that goes on in your home. Because all that produces is anger and disappointment in you and guilt and fear and frustration in your spouse. Unmet expectations lead to lots of conflict. 
And it also can very easily lead to affairs. Because when the person, when we discover that the person that we are looking to fulfill us is not fulfilling us, then we just feel tempted to go look for it in someone else. Maybe somebody else can. Listen, church, I don't care how romantic it sounds as a clever line in a movie, no human can complete you. They can't. It's impossible. You are whole only in Jesus. That's where we find our wholeness. Complete fulfillment is found in Christ, not others. And if you look to anyone else for your, your fulfillment, you will constantly be frustrated and bitter. Constantly, because it can't happen. Number three, the other thing that we tend to look to is the world. We run to everything that the world says is what satisfies. Things like popularity and sex and fleshly indulgence and material success. These are the things that make us feel good for a moment, but leave us even more empty once that high wears off. And it is a very dangerous thing to run to because the flesh is never satisfied. It's pretty good at building up a tolerance to things. And so in order to keep that good feeling coming, we've got to do more and more of it. And then we find ourselves stuck in the cul-de-sac of stupidity where we believe, you know what? More of what doesn't satisfy just might satisfy. And that's where we slip off into addictions. And then finally, number four, we look to religion trying to earn God's favor and make ourselves feel good based on our good behavior, by our good behavior. It's thinking that if I do more for God, I'll get more from God. It's coming to church on Sundays thinking that that'll make God overlook everything else that you did during the week. It's believing that the more religious activities you do, the more spiritual God will think of you. But it fails to understand that God has already given you more than you could ever imagine, more than you could ever need through Jesus. Next point is that it fails to understand that Jesus is enough. Religion is what the Jews were looking to that Paul was writing this letter to. And it is still what many people look to today, even people right here in the church. Every one of us in here can identify with one or more of these four things. For some of you, it perfectly explains what your life was like before you met Jesus. For others of you, there are some of these things right here that you are still looking to. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to live that way anymore. You don't have to try to fix yourself or find the right person or satisfy satisfy your flesh or... Be on your best behavior in order for God to like you. You don't have to strive for it anymore, living with the constant frustration that nothing you try ever works. All it takes to fix what's broken is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Just plug into Jesus and you're going to find that connection that you have always longed for. It really is just that simple. We no longer have to speculate as to how to fix what's broken because the remedy has been fully revealed to us in Jesus I want to hone in on a specific part of that because this is key. The part where he says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. 
Because you need to know that that doesn't mean that you just simply agree with a historical fact. He's not talking about believing that that happened to Jesus over 2,000 years ago. He's talking about relying on and putting your trust in what the resurrection means right now. And we could spend a whole series talking about what the resurrection means, but I want to give you just some things briefly. They're in your notes too. What does the resurrection mean for us now? Well, one, it means that all of God's requirements have been met. All of them have. Our standing with God is no longer based on what we do. It's based on what Jesus has done. It also means that God is for us. And he aims to overcome our sense of abandonment and alienation. The resurrection of Christ is the promise of God that all who are his will be the beneficiaries of his power to overcome this world and fulfill our purpose. It is a guarantee that his purpose for you will be fulfilled. Finally, it means that Jesus won. And so all who are in him, we now live from a constant place of victory rather than defeat. We are no longer victims, ever. We are forever victors. And so believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead is much more than merely accepting uh, biblical history as being true. It means knowing with confidence that God's requirement has been met, that God is for me, that his purpose in me will be fulfilled, and that I can now live from a place of victory in every circumstance that comes at me. It's not just agreeing that the resurrection happened, but applying the meaning and the benefits of the resurrection to every aspect of life Right now, let's read on here in Romans 10, verse 10. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. There is a difference between being in intellectual agreement with your mind and believing in your heart. There are people who go to church every week who may be in intellectual agreement with the facts of the gospel, but they have never been transformed by the power of the gospel. How do you know which one you are? Well, it's going to be evident in the way that you live. You see, when Paul's talking about confessing it with the mouth, I don't believe that he is giving a specific rule or instruction as if it were some formula. I mean, I don't believe that we can read this and give some blanket statement that applies to everyone and say, if you don't confess it with your mouth, then you're not saved. Because if that was the case, then what about people who can't talk? I mean, there are people who are mute and they can't say anything with their mouth. Are they automatically disqualified from God's grace? No, I don't believe they are at all. The bigger point, I believe, that is being made here is that if the gospel has changed you on the inside, if it truly has gotten a hold of your heart, then there's going to be evidence of that on the outside. It's just going to naturally manifest itself in what you do. Jesus said in Luke 6, the mouth speaks from that which fills 
the heart. You know, there is a way to confess that Jesus is Lord without ever saying anything. We confess Jesus as Lord in the way that we live and how we handle situations and the way that we treat other people. I mean, you can say Jesus is Lord until you are blue in the face, but if your life doesn't reflect that in any way, then it would be very difficult to say that authentic salvation has taken place there. And that does not mean that you go to church every week. I'm not talking about religious activity. I'm talking about viewing life from the perspective of the resurrection, implying everything that that means to every aspect of our life. It's about how the effects of the resurrection impact every part of life, at work, in your home, in your relationship with others, and in your role as a vital member of the body of Christ. And then the next point. Believing that God raised Jesus from the dead means being so confident of God's power and love that no fear of worldly loss or greed of worldly gain will lure us to disobey His will. And then verse 11. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that last verse there is huge. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That right there tells us that our salvation, our standing with God, is not based whatsoever on any performance on our part for God. It's based on the acknowledgement that we are incapable of doing anything and that we need God to do it for us. It's not whoever will obey these rules and follow these commands and observe these rituals will be saved. It's whoever calls on his name. It's whoever says, God, I have nothing I can do for you. I have nothing that I can give to you. I have nothing I need you for everything. He will be saved. I'm going to close by leaving you with this statement. And I want you to think about this and chew on it this week. Because we're going to come back next Sunday and talk about this in more depth. Now, this may go against everything that you may have heard in church before. But here it is. It's the last point in your notes there. We do not glorify God by providing for Him, but by relying on Him to provide for us. Think about that. And we'll talk about it more next week. Let's pray. Lord, just based on what you have done in our time together so far, I know there is someone in here, Lord, that you are speaking directly to through your word. God, I pray for the person in here who has had this sense inside that something is wrong, that something is broken and it needs to be fixed. And God, they have been spinning their wheels trying everything they can think of to satisfy that longing. 
try to heal whatever is hurt and fix what's broken. Lord, would you open their eyes to see the truth that that is only found in Jesus. Lord, I thank you that chains are being broken in this place. That wounds are being healed. That salvation is being won. So, Holy Spirit, I ask that you continue to carry out your will among us, not just collectively, but individually. Lord, what is it you're saying to me in this? Jesus, we just want you to reap the glory from everything that happens in here. So would you come and let your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.